Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. Well, Mark, welcome to our second podcast of 2023, <laughs> even though it's already April, so we're not doing <laughs> twice a month like we did uh, last year. We're going once every other month. We'll see if that holds. Well, hey, good things sometimes take time. I'm excited about this particular topic because we've mentioned it a few times in other podcasts, but we've never actually dove into it. Yeah, that's right. And since we don't shy away from those divisive topics, we decided this should be one of them, and it's labor unions. Some see unions as essential to keeping the modern economy at least somewhat fair. Others see them as a plus because they reduce or prevent the kind of exploitation workers have suffered historically. And then there are others who think unions are the most anti-competitive force in capitalism and have hindered the growth of business and ironically hurt the very workers the union claims it protects. Something tells me this debate has no easy resolution. It's a very nuanced and complex topic with an element of truth on both sides. Which is what makes it a great boiling frog topic. Absolutely. And to paint a more complete picture, we'll also do some quick comparisons to how unions work or don't work in other parts of the world. But our primary focus will be on unions in the U.S. And of course, to look at them through the lenses we like to use, such as economics, history, and social psychology, and of course, politics. We'll also spend some time on what makes private sector unions and public sector unions different, because that's often important in the political realm we all live in. We'll also have the chance to define a few more economic terms, which I know you'll appreciate, Mark, because I know you like your obscure economic <laughs> terms. I can hardly wait. OK, as we often do, let's start with a brief history of unions in the U.S. and touch on the state of unions today. I was really surprised to learn the first recorded instance of a labor action in America actually occurred before the U.S. even existed in 1768, when journeyman tailors protested a wage reduction. Eventually, local craft and trade unions proliferated, particularly in major cities and particularly among workers in large factories. And the history of unions is also tied to the history of immigration in this country. You know, with the continual flood of immigrants coming into the U.S., the price of labor declined. And one group was often pitted against another to keep wages down. So, for example, when Irish workers won raises in pay from the railroads, Chinese workers were brought in to replace them. Different nationwide trade organizations appeared in the early 20th century. This allowed labor interests to push for new laws, such as the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914, that allowed employees to strike and boycott their employers. Although, interestingly enough, one of the first antitrust laws was actually used to attack unions. And then later, what became now known as the AFL-CIO became sort of a single powerful organization that happened in 1955 from the merger of two nationwide union associations. It's also interesting that while lower paid or less skilled workers were always part of the union movement, it wasn't until the latter half of the 20th century that unions really began to pursue them pretty aggressively. A classic example of this was the famous grape boycott led by folks such as California's very own Cesar Chavez. Yeah, we have a street named after him in San Francisco, in fact. But at some point, union membership and union power started to wane. The percentage of workers belonging to a union in the U.S. peaked in 1954. So that was quite some time ago at almost 35% of the workforce. But the total number of union members peaked a little bit later, 1979, at about 21 million. But currently, there are only about 14 million union members, which is only about 10% of today's workforce. So let's talk about the forces that have weakened unions in the last four plus decades. Some argue the very laws that unions pushed for, 
Things like outlawing child labor and mandating equal pay for equal work, regardless of race or gender, undermined the need to belong to a union. But I think two other things are more important. Overall changes in the marketplace and concerted efforts by commercial interests to rein in unions. There were definitely at least three market changes that clearly had an impact. One, reduced manufacturing and a greater emphasis on the service sector, which hasn't been as unionized. Two, probably be technological advancement and automation. And three is probably globalization, right? More competition from companies abroad with cheaper labor. And it may just have taken time for commercial interests and ambitious politicians to figure out how to align and go after unions. <laughs> you know, clearly those forces had a bigger effect on the private sector, as today, the highest rates of union memberships are actually in the public sector and specifically local government, such as police officers, firefighters, teachers, etc. Unionization of public sector workers is almost 34 percent, while union membership in the private sector is only about 6 percent. The trends may be changing, though. There is some evidence of increased public support for unions, particularly among young people, as well as an increasing number of successful efforts at unionizing high-profile companies. That's happened at Amazon, Starbucks, and Apple. Okay, we're all somewhat familiar with U.S. unions and labor laws, but I think there is something to learn by looking at how unions organize and operate in other countries. I mean, most countries have unions, but their relationship to their larger economy is often very different than it is here. Yes, and no doubt the reason the U.S. has among the lowest unionization rates of all advanced economies is because we made different public policy choices from those made in other countries. Here's an interesting distinction. In most European countries, and even in some other rich countries outside the U.S., unions bargain not at the company level, but at the sector level. In other words, negotiating for all workers in an entire industry rather than just one company or one workplace. In France, an employer's federation representing restaurants will negotiate with a union representing restaurant workers. They reach a deal, and then that deal is extended to cover all restaurants and all restaurant workers. Although this presents its own issues, its sectoral bargaining creates this kind of free rider problem where there's less of an incentive to join a union because you'll get many of the benefits regardless, right? Which is probably why, which is seemingly ironically and a bit of a surprise to me, right, that in France, the percentage of workers being part of a union is actually lower than in the U.S. I mean, although that's one of the few countries in Europe where that's true. But maybe their system works for them because as long as you have enough dues-paying members to provide enough financial and political support the unions are still able to accomplish their goals. Perhaps, but I think in any case, it highlights what may be the biggest difference between the U.S. and these other countries. It's not necessarily the percentage of workers in a union, but rather the percentage of workers who are covered by a union negotiating deal. Another big difference between Europe and the U.S. is the frequency and impact of strikes. Those countries seem to have accepted a higher level of marketplace and social disruption than the U.S. chose to allow. <laughs> That's right. I mean, if you went to France recently on vacation uh, and it happened to coincide with one of their train strikes, you're acutely aware of this, you know, and countries like France, along with Spain, Belgium, Denmark. I mean, they're among the countries with you know the highest number of working days lost to a strike. Here, it's more like strikes are a step of last resort rather than an accepted part of the negotiating process. We even have federal legislation which allows the president to force labor negotiations to restart under certain circumstances. All right, with that as background, Mark, we can dive into the overall question of the value or cost of unions. All right, let's begin with the supporting side. And to do that, we'll have to discuss why unions even exist in the first place and connect that to our discussions around capitalism. This all goes back to our very first podcast. Capitalism requires buyers and sellers have complete and accurate information about the transaction they are about to enter into. 
And that applies to employers and employees buying and selling labor. And as we spoke about before, capitalism is also premised on the absence of friction in the labor market, meaning workers supposedly can, without cost, move around to different locations and different jobs. But in what I always refer to as a fundamental takeaway, at least for me, from our first podcast, neither of these conditions have ever been met in practice. Yeah, we've discussed many times that the labor market has lots of frictions. It may be reduced somewhat by technology and remote work, but clearly the economy can't redeploy workers very quickly and without cost. People just can't or won't move around that quickly. Without government intervention or something like labor unions, the employer always has more leverage at the negotiating table, particularly when the individuals making up the labor pool can be easily and inexpensively replaced. So, Mark, I'm going to take you back in time a little bit. Imagine a little over a century ago where there was no electronic tools or podcasts <laughs> or any efficient way to have decent information, let alone perfect information between employers and employees, and combine that with the great friction inherent in the labor market. Well, what would happen? Employees were often blind to competing working conditions and job opportunities, and as a result, often got trapped in a particular job. A literal example of this was what was called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in New York City in 1911. It was a situation where workers were trapped not only metaphorically, but physically where they worked. Doors to the stairwells and exits were locked, which was a common practice at the time, and many of the workers could not escape from the building when it caught on fire. A 146 garment workers died from the fire or the smoke inhalation or even falling or jumping to their deaths. It was one of the deadliest industrial disasters in the U.S. Most of the victims were recent Italian or Jewish immigrant women. Yes, and according to family stories, my great-grandmother was in that fire. I mean, she was only 16 and a half years old at the time, and I mean, she clearly survived. Wow, I have to say, I'm glad she survived, or I'd be having a hard time doing these podcasts. <laughs> oh, well, you probably would have found someone else, I guess, if I didn't exist. We'll never know. But in any case, that disaster brutally demonstrates that a purely laissez-faire system gives the employer most, if not all, of the power and the ability to make decisions to maximize profit while putting employees at risk. Yeah, and that's why the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire was instrumental in fueling the labor movement in the U.S. It led to both new legislation requiring improved factory safety standards and also led to the growth of unions. In addition to promoting worker safety, we need to remember jobs are not uniformly spread throughout the nation. Where a company or a public agency is the main employer for a given type of work in a particular geographic area, that employer holds a tremendous amount of negotiating power because it may be the only game in town. All right, Mark, you're referencing another economic term that we haven't yet introduced in this podcast, the monopsony. A monopsony, <laughs> which is not the same as a monopoly, a monopsony refers to a situation where a single employer controls the labor market in that industry or job type, or at least within some geographic area. Wouldn't a good historical example of just that be the auto industry? For the second half of the 20th century, the big three U.S. automakers were essentially the main employer for people in that entire industry. Oh, that's right. Although probably to be even more precise, we'd probably call that an oligopsony because it involved more than one company, but dynamics are similar. That concentration of negotiating power actually fueled the rise of the United Auto Workers Union as a counterweight to it. The UAW took a more European-style approach by targeting one of the automakers first in each negotiating round, negotiating a deal, and using that as the standard for completing deals with the other two manufacturers. So, but let's fast forward to today. 
As we mentioned, we do have more information about working conditions than we did in 1911 or in 1954, but it's still not a level playing field with complete and open information. I mean, see, for example, recent stories about how Amazon tracks its workers and its warehouses. Amazon probably deliberately locates warehouses in areas where real estate is inexpensive and also where they can exercise effective monopsony power over labor. And they're also an exaggerated example of how capitalism, left to its own devices, distributes wealth unevenly, which fuels the information and power asymmetries between the employer and an individual employee. Of course, we do have to recognize that any given time in any given industry, depending on economic conditions, individual workers have more or less bargaining rights. I mean, for example, when employment is low, more power shifts to the worker. Granted, but on balance, without unions and their collective power, few workers would have enough clout to get their interests addressed. In that way, unions are simply another form of human community, enabling their members to achieve more as individuals than they could do alone. Sure, it was certainly union activity that throughout the years has forced certain government actions, right, such as laws in the 1930s that mandated a minimum wage, extra pay for overtime work, and even created basic child labor laws. It also gave us things we now take for granted. Pensions, leave benefits, wrongful termination protection. The list goes on. Little, if any, of which would likely have existed, or at least would have only arrived at a much later date, without union power. And these benefits have also accrued to all of the non-unionized employees in the nation as well. Mark, let's shift to the problems with unions. Even though we just acknowledge that they largely exist as a response to failures in capitalism, one can certainly argue that unions are also on their face anti-capitalistic. They're essentially a cartel of labor, and that raises a bunch of interesting issues. We tend to think of unions as being fairly egalitarian, but in reality, they didn't start out that way. Union members in the skilled trades remained overwhelmingly native-born white Protestant men throughout the 19th century. Unions were reluctant to organize unskilled Irish and Italian immigrants, and they certainly also excluded women and blacks. And although eventually most unions expanded their membership to be more inclusive, the very nature of what they do makes it difficult to represent any individual's interest rather than what they perceive the interest of the group to be. It's inevitable there will be union members who don't think the union is working in their personal best interest. If they're forced to remain in a union, they're going to be stressed and unhappy about it. If the labor market were frictionless, our individual differences would, at least in theory, right, result in our being deployed to the perfect job and, you know, maximize our individual earnings. But the labor market is not frictionless, as we've discussed many times. Even worse, by negotiating on behalf of a group, unions add their own form of friction into the system. That's aggravated by their generally not allowing a certain degree of flexibility and nimbleness that most successful businesses want. And I think this is the main complaint you see from companies about unionized workforces. You often see this with entrenched businesses that are substantially unionized. They're at a disadvantage against upstarts, overseas competition, or any other situation where flexibility is critical. Even if the loss of flexibility provides important labor protections to the broader community, it's still a disadvantage which can drive companies out of business. You and I have held executive positions at a number of companies, and a unionized labor force does make it harder for the business often. And there are certainly cases where competitiveness is hurt or companies are more cautious in hiring because of the difficulty or the cost to later restructure their workforce if business conditions require it. This is no doubt related to the tremendous growth in gig and contract workers as companies seek to maintain as much flexibility as they can. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, a large multinational company that I once worked for definitely thought about that when we hired workers in different countries, for example. I mean, we took into account how hard it would be to fire them if the business didn't do as well as we'd hoped. I mean, it sounds a little crass, but as a business, you have to plan ahead for both sort of good and bad scenarios. Arguably, unionization makes companies more risk averse. And as we've said many times, taking risks is essential for creating value in a market capitalist society. But Seth, I think there's another factor in play here. The economic pressure unionized companies can face isn't just the result of their being unionized. It's the result of not every company in their marketplace being unionized. I think it's a classic prisoner's dilemma, this time stretched across geography and different economic systems. Every company and every country will have pressure to be more relatively competitive, so it's unlikely we'll get everyone to agree to the same rules, right? Whether it's worker protections, environmental rules, or even how we pay for healthcare. Okay, let's shift a bit, because that's a good summary of the pros and cons of unions, Mark, right? At least in the economic sphere. But there's another aspect of unions, which I personally think is more interesting, but I've never really heard discussed, maybe except by us, right? Despite the liberal political leanings of unions, they're actually quite conservative organizations. We're talking about conservatism with a small c here, meaning resistance to change of any kind. Any organization or community, particularly if it adds value to its members, acts to preserve itself, even sometimes at the expense of the members it serves. I think an interesting example of this may be how unions have actively resisted the notion of weeding out bad actors within their own membership. I mean, we've seen that a lot, particularly recently with police unions. Professional associations, which are similar in some respects to labor unions, do, on the other hand, actually police themselves. The Bar Association, the American Medical Association, and others they maintain codes of conduct which they frequently enforce by kicking out or suspending members who fail to keep up professional standards. While in local office, I think you and I both witnessed this conservatism, small c, of resisting change and having even a knee-jerk reaction to new approaches and new ideas, and you know, in, including uh, our local teachers union. I think some of the resistance in that case was the fear union members had that they might end up being treated unequally. That could shift power away from the union, which in turn would then weaken their ability to represent their members' interests. I do recognize that the power structure between management and labor isn't equal, but it has changed over the years. However, it always felt like the union was using an old playbook, one that perpetuated framing of the problem of being labor versus management, as opposed to really two constituencies that could come together and come up with creative solutions that could benefit everyone. I saw signs of that too, Seth. On the other hand, California teachers clearly have reason to think the system doesn't treat them fairly as a result of Prop 13 decimating education funding. Yes, I agree, of course, that California and many other states don't fund education sufficiently, which gives the union some basis for its confrontational stance. That said, there also appears to be a self-selection bias for those who decide to be union representatives. They tend not to be the out-of-the-box thinkers because it would take a lot of courage to remake that old playbook. <laughs> Which sounds a lot like politics where the compensation, so to speak, is mostly access to future opportunities, power, stature within the community, those kinds of things. All of which tend to make electeds little c kind of conservatives. On the other hand, given the typical power asymmetry between management and labor, unions, and union leadership often see themselves just as playing defense. You know, and I want to bring up another issue. You know, as we discussed in our podcast on corruption, conservatism does create a clearer path for corruption. I mean, the resistance to change requires a power structure, and that power can then be corruptive. 
That's right. Just this month, a California police union leader was charged in an opioid smuggling scheme, of all things. Yeah. You know, and there's a long history of corruption within unions and especially their leaders, right? Including racketeering, association with organized crime, bribery, extortion, kickbacks, you know, etc. Which astute listeners, at least ones of a certain age, will realize was the inspiration for the title of this very podcast. <laughs> Now let's uh, devote some time comparing and contrasting unions in the private sector versus those in the public sector, right? As we mentioned before, today there's a much greater percentage of unionization in the public sector, like about five times what it is in the private sector. And these public sector unionized employees are mostly not like traditional factory workers. They're police, firefighters, teachers, postal workers, legislative staff, and other things like that. Although, granted, nowadays, most factory workers don't fit the traditional factory worker model either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems to me like there are two key differences in the nature of public sector unionized employees versus their private sector counterparts. The first is the risk profile inherent in the job, and the second is the public nature of their positions. In our podcast on risk, we pointed out public sector employees pursue a different kind of compact than their peers in the private sector. Public sector workers often sacrifice wages for the more inherent stability of the public sector. High-tech startups may come and go, but the city of San Carlos very likely will be around forever. Which leads to private unions tending to focus on job security and wages, while public unions focus more on improving work conditions. Makes sense. But even more fascinating to me is that second big difference, which is the public nature of these public positions. And I think those have two interesting characteristics themselves. The first is that their employer is more likely to be a monopsony, as we discussed, right, or as a quasi-monopsony. And the second is that the job is often done, at least in some degree, out in public view, more so for certain jobs like teachers and, you know, police officers, for example. They're monopsonies by design, as there's generally only one government agency providing a particular set of public services in any given area. There is some overlap across different levels of government, but nowhere near as much as you'd see in a typical private sector environment. Let's use teachers as an example. Because of the quasi-monopsony of school employers, combined with, of course, the overall modest funding of education in the U.S., teachers tend not to be the highest breadwinner in a household, and as such, often don't dictate where a family moves. That's a development, though, that took place within my own lifetime. I had a number of teachers growing up who were the primary breadwinner. But you're right. Today, if one spouse is a teacher and the other works in the private sector, generally it's the latter's job that dictates where they live which in turn creates more friction in the teacher labor market because there aren't a lot of incentives for teachers to move across the U.S., which then exacerbates teacher shortages, right, in many parts of the country. I also agree with your point, Seth, that the public nature of public sector positions is also a major difference. Public agencies face greater exposure if they violate laws, rules, or due process. That imposes a greater constraint on how they can deal with their workforce. You know, we had a good example locally of that distinction, right? There was a restaurant here that had a long history of underpaying employees, right, such as withholding tips. Now, it did eventually get fined for those violations, but it took a long time for the restaurant to get caught. And no doubt there are similar cases where private employers never get caught doing that. Doing something like that in a public agency would likely be a career-ending event for many, if not all, of the electeds and senior managers involved. Not to mention the very real possibility some or all of them would end up serving time. The public just has less tolerance for public agencies violating rules than it does for private sector companies doing similar things. But this dynamic exists, as we've talked about many times, because public institutions serve everyone. I think that most people, though, in the private sector don't appreciate the ramification of having a job where so many people are watching you do it. 
In schools, parents talking to principals about their kids' teachers creates a level of pressure on those teachers and administrators that just doesn't really exist in a private company. And of course, it gets ramped up like crazy in places like Florida, where they're effectively intimidating teachers, right, under the guise of, you know, parental rights. Which illustrates how public sector unions act to ensure due process, particularly in cases of employee review, discipline, or even termination, when confronted by the monopsony power of government. Yeah, I understand that. And even though I think as school board members, I mean, you and I and our colleagues were fair actors, I get that political pressure could cause even well-meaning administrators or school boards to make the wrong decision about an employee's performance. So it's understandable that the teachers union negotiates a way to put some guardrails in, right, to prevent leaders from acting upon political pressure. And this logic, you know, of course, also applies to other public sector positions as well. I think there's another distinction in addition to the ones you mentioned earlier, Seth. If a private sector union negotiates severely onerous restrictions about work rules, the employer could always threaten to close down and move the jobs elsewhere. This can't happen in the public sector because governments can't go out of business or relocate, although they can shrink their services. It's why public sector unions, particularly teachers unions, have been pretty successful in negotiating work rules. But I think here's the problem. I mean, I get how the very nature of work rules makes sense in like physically demanding jobs, right, such as factory workers, you know, traditionally at least. But clearly, they are less critical for white collar jobs. I mean, so what I think what's happened in certain sectors like teaching is that the rules become less about what's best for getting the job done and more about just getting concessions from the employer because they know they're undercompensated. And I agree teachers are undercompensated, but that doesn't mean work rules make sense or in the best interest of students. Perhaps. But I suspect one can get a lot of those work rules changed if school districts were able to pay teachers more. In that sense, the public's unwillingness to tax themselves more may be what's leading to those work rules in the first place. You know, this discussion of work rules reminds me of our specific experience with teachers unions. I mean, I always found it odd and a bit ironic that teachers constantly asked us, and by us I mean the school board or the administration, right, to treat them like professionals, which we agree they are. But then they have an organization that represents them like they were factory workers with these undifferentiated skills. There are other unionized labor forces, though, that are also highly trained. Take airline pilots, for example, or nuclear power plant operators. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how those unions approach negotiations. I mean, I've never been part of any of those, so I don't know. But in our case, you know, at one point, San Carlos teachers were represented by a former longshoreman right, sent from the state union. I mean, it was actually quite comical to have him debate our superintendent over what is best for students. <laughs> Arguably, without that involvement, I mean, our local teachers may have been able to do a better job with uh, working with our administration on mutually beneficial approaches to compensation and work rules and, and, you know, the like. Maybe. On the other hand, the teachers, not being trained negotiators, might not do as good a job at the bargaining table. And there's often value in any event in having an attack dog in your corner because it gives you the ability to play good cop, bad cop in the negotiating process. That's part of the reason management often hires negotiating consultants, too. But let's get back to the point about how conservative organizations often don't serve their members as well as they think they do. Now that I'm out of office, I'll say something that some may think is a bit controversial. Even though I recognize there are definitely benefits to teachers in having a union, such as the due process provisions we just discussed, I totally agree with that. Overall, I believe that at least on average, and at least in our school district, without the union, I think teachers would actually have been paid more. 
Of course, compensation would have been differentiated more among teachers, and some would have had to take on additional responsibilities to, to get that. But I think in total, we could have grown the pie. It would have been an interesting experiment to run, but my gut tells me it wouldn't have worked out that way. Education can't create new economic value like you can in the private sector because the buyers, the community, particularly the members of the community that don't have kids in the system, generally won't pay for it. Prop 13 has created such a funding gap that many sources of legitimate educational value, including attracting and retaining better teachers, are hard or impossible to achieve. Instead, everyone ends up fighting over scraps, which in turn drives everyone to negotiate really aggressively. Okay, Mark, I get that. Before we go, let's talk about one other issue. What I mean by that is sort of the larger political dynamic related to unions, right? As we mentioned, despite being small C conservative organizations, labor unions by and large tend to support liberal, progressive, and mostly Democratic Party issues and candidates. So why is that? I think it's because there's an asymmetry of political power. Despite the logical flaw that we consider corporations as people, corporations are treated with an amazing level of free speech, funding, and political lobbying rights. And they largely use that power to promote conservative political issues and candidates and issues they consider pro-business, which often means anti-union. And that is true, despite people like Ron DeSantis claiming that Disney is too woke or that <laughs> corporations are too focused on ESG. Because by and large, corporations are politically conservative players, especially when it comes to relationship with labor. That can include things like right-to-work laws, too, which forbid unions and employers from entering into agreements requiring employees to join a union and pay dues and fees to it in order to keep or hold a job. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 21 states have these so-called right-to-work laws. So unions need to wield political power as a counterbalance to corporate political power. This translates into unions having to join the other political team and align with more liberal or progressive politics. So I guess even if you're like me and somewhat skeptical of unions, or at least just recognize some serious issues with union power, if you're overall a progressive, you're also wary of limiting or reducing union power, right, Mark? I mean, I think you're more of a consistent union supporter than I am, but I, I do see the middle ground here, right? I mean, one could be skeptical about the value of the union, whether in our school district or elsewhere, but also not want to dismantle the whole union structure that does fight for most other causes we believe in. <laughs> our perspectives may be closer than you think, Seth. One of the things I've learned from our podcast is that it's impossible to design a perfect social system. So as a result, the best way to craft at least a decent one is to mix and match components so the flaws tend to offset each other. Which sounds weird at first blush. Why would you deliberately use flawed components to build anything? But it makes sense if you stop and think about it. <laughs> you know, I've always thought we need to go around the world and like steal the best political and cultural ideas from you know, each of those countries and then adopt them as our own. But I think we're a little too jingoistic to do that. Well, Seth, once again, we've come to the conclusion that like most of the issues we discussed, there is no simple answer, despite how many people in the political arena sure seem to be prone to reducing it to sound bites. <laughs> well, maybe we should change the subtitle of our podcast to be something like The Boiling Frog. It's complicated. <laughs> or The Boiling Frog. The answer is it depends. But let's try to wrap up with some <laughs> takeaways and potential positive changes. We've been running an experiment in extreme libertarianism for the last 40 odd years which, ironically, hasn't promoted capitalistic ideals, let alone ideals of equity and democracy. So we have to conclude that even today, unions, with all their flaws, are still necessary to compensate for the flaws in our current approach to market capitalism. And what you mean by the flaws of capitalism, I think, you know, are the extreme friction in the labor market, 
the asymmetry and in information between employer and employee and the imbalance of political power. So I guess what that tells me is one way to reduce the need for a union is actually to make capitalism better and closer to its ideals, such as we discussed in the very first podcast. Definitely. But as we have also pointed out multiple times, that's going to be really hard to do in practice. Even with advancements in technology and the right set of laws, the labor market is likely always going to be subject to monopsonies and friction. And it's hard to imagine a world where political power ends up being evenly distributed. Although things like increased public funding of elections would probably help even with that. You know, you made me think of something that I've always wondered that could be interesting. What if there were some grand political bargain where we all agreed to limit the political influence of both corporations and unions in politics and not have either spend money on candidates, for example? I mean, I realize I may be delving into fantasy land here, but it does seem like so many of the problems we've discussed on these podcasts come back to money distorting the political system and the ridiculous assertion that money equals speech, for example. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. But besides probably requiring an amendment to the Constitution, I suspect your proposal is a political non-starter, as since few politicians on either side of the aisle would even want to engage in a discussion about it. To date, at least, those ideas, which are at the heart of campaign finance reform, have foundered on the rock of the First Amendment, which I also have to say I definitely don't want to just casually degrade. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate that my idea is probably dead on arrival, right, as it was run counter to the self-interest of elected officials, but it's still worth imagining. In any case, if we can't fundamentally change the political underpinnings here, can we at least evolve the relationship between unions and employers to better reflect our modern market conditions? I mean, is there a win-win here that could benefit both union members and the overall economy? There are probably at least two approaches that would help improve things. The first is enacting more progressive tax policies, and the second is enacting reforms and programs to reduce friction in the labor market. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about tax policy a lot and how a more progressive tax system could at least reduce the lopsidedness of wealth and therefore political power. And I'm all for reducing friction of any kind in the market because that's what any capitalist should want. So let's get more specific on the latter. I think we should give every worker the tools to advance their career and to take calculated risks to do that. This includes training programs to combat structural unemployment when whole professions get obsoleted by the march of technology, even if that march otherwise enriches society. We also need to provide easier and better access to education for all, as well as universal pre-K and childcare. I mean, all of that will go a long way to reducing labor friction. We could also reduce it by discouraging municipalities and states from raiding each other's employers through publicly financed incentive programs and instead focus more on growing the pie by encouraging the creation and growth of new businesses. I think that sounds like a future podcast topic, because I've always found it curious how we allow municipalities to compete against each other for businesses, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> Another way to promote risk-taking, I think, as we mentioned in our last podcast, would be to broaden unemployment insurance and decouple health care from employment. I know we've hammered on this before, but I don't think people appreciate the connection between healthcare reform and the inability to modernize our labor structure. Clearly, the world has changed, and there are a lot of benefits to promoting gig and contractor work, for example. It does reduce friction in the system. But employment regulations haven't caught up with that reality. I mean, even in California, we've had this fight over whether folks, you know, such as Uber drivers should be contractors or employees. I mean, imagine a world where healthcare was decoupled from employment that would likely open the door to modernizing employment law and making it less monolithic. I think that's a great example of how what we often think of as, quote, progressive, unquote, political ideas 
such as universal health care, would actually promote a more efficient form of market capitalism and certainly a fairer one. But we can't end this podcast, Mark, without also a plea to unions and their leaders to be part of the solution here. I mean, they do need to think more progressively. And by that, I mean a willingness to change and experiment and also set higher standards for their own members. I mean, don't tolerate those bad apples that make everyone else look bad. Perhaps by being a little more exclusive, you know, in terms of members at least holding up the ideals of the profession, they would actually grow both their membership and the relative power. Well, Seth, another fun discussion of a topic that is both nuanced and polarizing. Hopefully we've unpacked some of the many subtleties for our listeners. Well, maybe, and uh, maybe the boiling frog gets complicated. We'll catch on. (laughs) But in any case, uh, thanks to you, Mark. Thanks to our listeners. Uh, Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Wishing you all some friction-free labor. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.